please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're continuing looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And if you would to turn to Luke uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, just a reminder this, this evening, our electives continue. Some electives are, one of our electives is held at Camp Good News, another is held at, others are held at uh, Bethany Baptist Church and Living Hope Community Church. And so I encourage you this evening as you're thinking about how God might have you spend your Sunday evening uh, to consider participating in, in the electives uh, this evening. Well, if you've turned to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, and if you're able, I'd encourage you to stand with us in honor of God as we read his word together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I'm going to actually read uh, verses 1 through 16, uh, even though we're just going to be looking at 1 through 9 this morning. So let's begin reading in verse 1, Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You may be seated. May you be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. Uh, let's pray. And Father, we, we thank you for your word here that instructs us in how to live, and we pray that you would help us this morning as we think through how rightly to apply your word in our lives and help us as we think about those in our life who have not accepted your son Jesus Christ as their savior that we would be encouraged this morning and, and compelled by compassion to present the good news of peace to them. I pray this in your son Jesus's name. Amen. In ancient times, a messenger considered it a high honor to be able to deliver the news of victory. One of the most famous ancient messengers was a man named Pheidippides. And Pheidippides was a, an ancient messenger. In 490 BC, the Persians landed in Greece. And as they landed in Greece, they landed near a town called Marathon. And the people from the city of Athens went out to meet the Persian army. It was a vastly superior force. The Athenians uh, met the army of Persia near Marathon, and they said to Pheidippides, they said, uh, Pheidippides, run to Sparta and ask the Spartans to come and help us. And so Pheidippides ran to the city of Sparta. He told the Spartans what was taking place. They said they were unable to help at the time, and so Pheidippides made the journey back to Marathon. It was a journey of some 150 miles in two days. The Athenians decided to go ahead and attack this vastly superior Persian force, and they defeated them. And in their excitement, they turned to Pheidippides once again, and the legend is related in a poem by Robert Browning, written in 1879. Let me read you what he writes. So when Persia was dust, all cried, To Acropolis, run, Pheidippides! One race more, the mead is thy due, Athens is saved, thank Pan, go shout. 
he flung down his shield, ran like fire once more, and the space twixt him and the fennel field. And Athens was stubble again, a field which a fire runs through, till in he broke, rejoice, we conquer. Like wine through clay, joy in his blood, bursting his heart, the bliss. Pheidippus runs from Marathon to Athens and without ceasing that 26.2 miles and as he bursts into Athens he cries out victory and falls down dead thus achieving immortality in legend. Pheidippus is a famous messenger. He cries out victory and achieves greatness. It was considered the highest honor of a messenger to be able to be the one who bears that news and compelled by that desire to proclaim that news of victory, he pushed himself beyond what he was able to endure so that he could cry out, we have won. Now, what you may not know is that in ancient Greece, this messenger who carried news of victory was called an evangelist. That same word that we get the word evangelist from was used to describe this person carrying news of victory. And the news that they carried was the same word that we get our word gospel from. These evangelists, these messengers, carried the gospel, the good news that victory had been achieved. In fact, one person writes this, the gospel in ancient Greek was a technical term for news of victory. The messenger appears, raises his right hand in greeting, and calls out with a loud voice, grace, we are victorious. By his appearance, it is known already that he brings good news. His face shines, his spear is decked with laurel, his head is crowned, he swings a branch of palms, joy fills the city, the temples are decorated, crowns are put out for sacrifices, and the one to whom the message is owed is honored with a wreath. As the messenger comes into a city, it's this good news, this gospel news that victory has been achieved, and the whole city is, is full of joy. That's the term the New Testament writers employ to describe this message of peace, this good news that you and I bear to a lost world. You and I, for those of us who are believers, have heard the good news, the gospel news, that peace has been offered by God. That God, even though we were his enemies, has provided peace for us. Even though we were separated from God, the gospel, the good news, is that God has provided peace for us. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He's done away with the war that exists between us. And we can receive that peace by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. And now, we talked about this last week as we began looking at verses 1 through 9 of Luke chapter 10. And now... You and I have been entrusted with the task of proclaiming peace to others. We are the evangelists. We are the one who bear the good news that war with God is over if we place our faith in the provision that he's offered us, his son, Jesus Christ. We are, Isaiah tells us, we are offering this gospel message in Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the message that we proclaim to a lost world. God reigns, and here is the peace that he offers you. And last week, let me just kind of remind you a little bit about what we talked about as we talked about being compelled by compassion. We first of all looked at verses 1 and 2 and talked about this idea of being compelled by compassion. Look at the text again with me if you would. 
Verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And so Jesus takes these 72 disciples, a little different than what he did at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. Here in Luke chapter 10, he takes a, a larger group, and he sends them out two by two, so 36 groups, to go into these regions that he's about to enter. And they're to go and prepare people to hear his message. And again, presumably, as we talked about last week, they're going to be proclaiming the same thing that Jesus has been proclaiming, that God's kingdom is coming. They need to turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus. They need to recognize that Jesus is the one through whom this peace comes. They repent of their sins, accept that God's kingdom is coming, and recognize that Jesus is the one who's bringing it. Then Jesus says this at the beginning of verse 2 of Luke chapter 10. And he said to them, these are his first words, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And last week, if you remember, we talked about this imagery of harvest. Sometimes the imagery of harvest had a very negative connotation of of judgment. We looked at Joel chapter 3 talking about this harvest to judgment. Sometimes the imagery of harvest has it has it with the idea of being rescued from God's judgment into eternal life. Look at John chapter four. So what Jesus is saying is the harvest, the end times when God's judgment is coming, it's 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 here. It's 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 soon, and the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there are a large number of people who are in danger of experiencing God's wrath. The harvest is plentiful. The opportunity is abundant. But, he says, the laborers are few. Big job, incredible task, few people engaged in accomplishing it. Now, Jesus' assumption is, for those who are his disciples, that's a compelling argument to be engaged in gospel ministry, in good news proclamation, in harvesting of souls. For the true disciple of Jesus, it is a compelling argument. And last week, and I think it's important to set this up again, last week in Romans chapter 9, we saw what Paul said. Paul in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have, what does he say? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart as he considers the Jews who have rejected the gospel message. Now, here's my question for you as we, again, set this up, this idea of proclaiming the gospel up. Is that true of you? Do you have in your heart, even this morning, great sorrow and unceasing anguish as you consider the people around you who are entering, who are in danger of entering into eternity without Jesus Christ? In hell. Does that idea fill you with great sorrow? Is it always with you in in kind of the back of your mind and and a little bit of a a heavy weight on your heart as you live your life thinking, boy, I, I have unceasing anguish and great sorrow in my heart as I consider the people around me who do not yet know Jesus Christ? For Paul, it's an ever-present reality. For the true disciple of Jesus Christ, it's an ever-present motivation. It affects how we live our lives in very profound ways. Jesus begins this ministry of sending the 72 out with that phrase. The harvest is plentiful. There are many people who need to be harvested, who need to be rescued from God's judgment, who need to enter into God's kingdom, and yet the laborers are few. There are a small number of people who are actively engaged in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our compassion for those around us should compel us to action, to gospel ministry. And if that's your heart, which I trust it is for those of you who are believers, let's consider the principles that Jesus gives these 72 as they engage in proclaiming God's peace to them. The first one we saw last week, the first first one is in verse 2, 
Therefore, he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. And so the first thing here is to pray for God's grace. We asked the question last week, well, why do we need to pray if God is completely sovereign over all things? Does, is prayer kind of like this little joke? Hey, why don't you pray, but I already know what I'm going to do. No, we saw last week as we looked at Scripture, we saw that prayer truly affects what happens. Prayer, as we pray to God, it reflects the truth that we recognize that God is sovereign, and it also truly affects what happens in the world around us. We looked at several texts that describe the effective nature of, of prayer. We looked at Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We looked at Amos chapter 7, in which Amos's prayer affected what happened. And the reality of life is this, as life happens, as things happen, what you pray affects the world around you. And yes, God is absolutely sovereign, and in God's sovereign nature in his sovereign plan, he has decreed not just what will happen, but how those things that happen will come about. I gave the illustration last week of eating. Whenever I eat food, I have a real sense that yes, God is sovereign, but this food that I'm eating is going to affect how I feel physically. And yes, God has sovereignly decreed how much I'm going to weigh, perhaps to the, very ounce, to the very ounce, and yet at the same time, my actions have real consequences. So it is with prayer. God has ordained the future. God's sovereign over the future, and prayer is what a sovereign God has decreed will affect what he does. And so if you're serious about engaging in gospel ministry, understand that prayer is an essential part of bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. And I encouraged you to think of some names to pray for. So we pray for God's grace. That was the first principle. Secondly, we go into enemy territory. Verse 3, Jesus says, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. God recognizes that for us to engage in gospel ministry, we have to be around the people who need to hear the gospel. And so Jesus sends his disciples, these 72 disciples, to engage people in gospel ministry. That brings us to the third principle for the harvest in verse 4. In verse 4, Jesus, as he's continued these instructions, says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and, and greet no one on the road. The principle here is trust God's provision. Trust God's provision. First, he says, you're not to carry with you a money bag. Now, as a person engages in a journey, and they begin to take a, a trip, even today, what will we do? So, okay, I, I want to get from point A, central Illinois, and I want to get to point B, wherever point B is. And we have some sort of notion of, of how we're going to get from point A to point B, what sort of uh, mechanism we're going to use to travel, and how we're going to, to pay for these different things that we do. Even if our, our plan is just vague enough where I've, I've got a piece of plastic called a credit card, and I'm going to use the credit card and figure out how to pay for it later. We have some idea how we're going to be provided for on that trip, right? Well, Jesus is saying, look, I don't want you, to, first of all, to even take a money bag. And they didn't have nice little tiny credit cards or, or paper cash. They had, had coins that they would carry with them, and they would use these coins to engage in commerce. And what does Jesus say? Don't take a money bag. Don't take any financial provision for yourself on this ministry. Secondly, don't take a backpack, a knapsack. A traveler you know, has a suitcase, has something in which they carry the things that they need in order to do this journey. And Jesus says, don't take that either. Thirdly, they're not even to take sandals. They're not to take this extra pair of, of uh, footwear in order to, to be able to make sure they had a backup pair of sandals, Jesus says, don't take that either. The whole idea here is one of urgency. If a person was traveling, this, this, was planning to take this trip, perhaps they would think through all these steps, and they think about what I'm going to put in the knapsack, what I'm going to put in the money, where I'm going to put my money, how I'm going to hide it, uh, how I'm going to have this extra pair of sandals in case something goes wrong with this first pair. Jesus says, none of that. There's an urgency to this ministry. You need to go right now, and you need to go quickly, and you need to engage in this ministry in a very rapid manner, and so don't take any of those things that are going to slow you down. 
In fact, don't even, as you go, greet people on the road. Have a laser-like focus on this ministry to which I'm calling you. It's a similar idea, I think, that Jesus is doing here to Philippians 4.19, where Paul says that, that God will richly supply all your needs. God ordains not just the ministry that he calls a person to, but how he's going to provide for them as they do that ministry. And Jesus is telling his disciples, trust God's provision to do this ministry. Sometimes, you and I, as we engage in ministry, or we think about a ministry that God's calling us to, we think, okay, uh, for me to do this ministry, I need uh, X, Y, and Z. Okay? If I'm going to do a, a youth ministry, I need a, uh, I need a really exciting worship band, and I need, uh, I need some really cool PowerPoint slides, and I need a really dynamic uh, leader here, and I need the awesome messy games. I need all of these things in order to do this ministry. If I'm going to have a, a great a growth in my worship service, I need to have a multimedia presentations, and I need to have this, and I need to have a, a great meeting facility. I need to have all these things. And sometimes, God, you say, God, for me to do this ministry, I need uh, X, Y, and Z. And God says, no, no, but go ahead and do the ministry. But God, I, I don't have this, this, this. No, okay. Do the ministry. Trust my provision. Think about this in terms of gospel ministry. Each of us who are believers who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ have been tasked by God to proclaim the good news of God's peace with people. And sometimes, if you're like me, you have this idea that for me to really be effective in gospel ministry, I need this exact set of circumstances to fall into place for me to share the gospel with someone. We sometimes use the phrase, open door. I need God to provide me an, an open door to share the gospel. Now, you have a, a friend at school, and this friend at school, you hear them uh, crying at their locker. You have a friend at school who is, is struggling at home, and you know that they're struggling at home. Uh, you have a, a friend at, at school that has told you some terrible things that are going on in their life, and, and you know they need the gospel. You know that they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and to enter into a relationship with him. You have a coworker that sits at the cubicle next to you. And you can hear them talking on the phone, and you know that there are things that are going on in their life that are terrible, and as you hear them talk, you recognize that they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have no biblical idea of how to handle the problems that they're, they're going through. You know they need the gospel of peace. You know that they need to be reconciled to God. You have a neighbor. Your kids play together, and you know that that neighbor is going through some terrible things in her extended family, and you know that she needs the gospel of peace, and what are you doing about it? What are you doing with your friends at school, your coworkers, your neighbors? You're saying, I'm praying for an open door. You know where that expression open door comes from? It comes from Colossians. Uh, turn to Colossians with me if you would. I believe it's Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, I believe it's the beginning of chapter 4, yeah, verse 2, verse 3. Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 2, though. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time, pray also for us, what? That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, and what's his problem? Why is Paul praying for an open door? On account of which I am in prison. <laughs> what's Paul's barrier to sharing the gospel? He's in prison. <laughs> 
And so he's praying for an open door, literally, God, I'm stuck in prison, please. And so he tells the people in Colossae, hey, please pray for me that I have the opportunity to clearly present the truth of God, his gospel, of which account I'm in prison. Paul's closed door is being physically restrained from interacting with people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I, being in this room this morning, my assumption is none of us are under the similar constraints that Paul is under in Colossians chapter 4. And so God has provided open doors for us. And so our prayer is that God would continue to help us speak the gospel clearly. And sometimes you and I have this idea. My idea of an open door is my neighbor knocking on my door saying, uh, Daniel, uh, hold on a second, handcuffing themselves to me and saying, now, will you please share the gospel with me? Ah, it's an open door. God calls us to gospel ministry. And and it's true, sometimes things don't just fall right into place the way that we'd like them to. Sometimes we don't have all the things we'd like to have in order to do gospel ministry And God calls us to still do that ministry, trusting in what he provides. I don't have a close enough relationship. I don't know what to say. I don't know this. I don't have this. Pray that God would help you clearly communicate the gospel of peace to those that he's called you to minister to. Trust God's provision. The disciples are called to take this journey not even knowing how they're going to pay for it, how they're going to be provided for, and yet God still calls them to engage in that ministry. Trust God's provision. Fourth principle we see in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he's just told them how, where they're to go and, then he, and how they're to get there and not taking any resources. And then in verse 5 he says, Whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And so as people take you into their homes, your first priority is to let them know what you're all about. You're to give them this greeting of peace. Peace be upon you. In other words, it's a common greeting, but what they're saying is my ministry, my mission is one of proclaiming God's peace. And as you proclaim God's peace, let them know that as your first priority. And if it's a person who is receptive to that message of God's peace, that peace is going to reside on them. They're going to say, yeah, I accept that. They're going to reciprocate with that. But if it's a person, it's kind of a foreshadowing here, but if it's a person who is not receptive to your message of peace, it's going to return to you. They're not going to be accepting of this message you bring of how to be reconciled to God. This idea of peace is a crucial idea in the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, as Zechariah is, is praying for his, his son, uh, John the Baptist, he's talking about the ministry that he's going to have, and he, he says that John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Messiah to give knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace, the Hebrew word shalom, was this beautiful story of how a person could be reconciled to God, experienced God, a, a peaceful relationship with God. It wasn't shalom, peace, wasn't just the cessation of hostilities, it wasn't just stopping fighting, it was this beautiful restoration of relationship. fourth principle here is to proclaim God's peace. Proclaim God's peace in verses 5 and 6. They're to enter into a home and proclaim that God's peace is being offered. I have no doubt that in a room this size, there are some who have not accepted God's terms of peace. Scripture tells us that heaven, eternal life with God, is a free gift, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that 
By grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God freely offers us eternal life, peace, shalom, reconciliation with him. Why, why would he do that? Well, it's because of who you and I are. Romans 5 tells us that you and I were enemies of God. We were engaged in hostility with God. And some of you this morning may say, well, you know what? Uh, I don't think of myself as actively opposed to God. I mean, sure, we're not in the best of terms. No, Romans 5 tells us that we are separated from God. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. You and I, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, are God's enemies. We are living our lives in a way that is contrary to what he has told us to live our lives. We are in rebellion against our sovereign God and creator. This morning, there are some of you here who are rebels, actively working against what God and who God has called you to be. Scripture tells us that sin is pervasive in our lives. And sometimes as we think about being in rebellion to God, we say, well, sure, I, I understand that, that so-and-so is a great sinner, and, and I do some things that aren't perfect, but so-and-so is really bad. And, and let me just agree with you, that so-and-so guy is pretty bad. But you and I, every single one of us, have committed sins that are worthy of eternal suffering in hell and separation from God. Think about the two greatest things that God calls us to, the two greatest commandments. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are just the two big ones. And on just those two commandments, we fail on a moment-by-moment basis. We've lived our lives in active rebellion to God and his purposes for us. And God is a God that, yes, loves us, but also is just and must punish sin. And so, because he loves us and desires this relationship, because he desires peace, he desires shalom, he desires reconciliation with us, what can he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty of our sin for us. And Jesus Christ, as he died on the cross, suffered not just the physical pain of death, but the weight of God's wrath. And as we think about proclaiming God's peace, this ministry of reconciliation, what we're talking about is that restoration of relationship with God because Jesus Christ bore the penalty of our sins for us. And now, God says, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not on your own works, not on the basis of your deeds, not on the basis of how cute you are, how attractive you are, how charming you are, on the basis of Christ's work on the cross, you can place your faith in him and achieve God's shalom, God's peace. And how important of a message is that? Notice what Jesus says to his disciples, these 72 disciples. It's the first thing that they're to proclaim as they go into a home. God's peace is coming. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It relates to the gospel. The gospel message is a crucial message. And it's to so permeate who we are as we think about God's peace that we're to proclaim it. Proclaim it as our first priority. I told you a story about one messenger at the beginning. I told you about Phidippidus. And let me tell you a story about another messenger. Another messenger. This occurred after the death of Alexander the Great. After the death of Alexander the Great, remember his generals were fighting for supremacy. And one of his generals' names was Antigonus. And Antigonus had a son named Demetrius, and Demetrius fought this great battle for his father, and he won the battle, and he sent a messenger to go tell his father that they had been victorious, and this messenger's name was Aristodemus. And Aristodemus is sent to tell Antigonus that the battle has been won, and Aristodemus, the messenger, arrives in his ship. He tells the people on the ship to stay there. He doesn't want anyone else leaving the ship. He wants to be the one to proclaim the good news, remember the honor 
the honor of proclaiming the gospel, the victory. So Aristodemus gets off the boat. He arrives in the city, and the city knows that there's some message that Aristodemus has. And Aristodemus keeps his face very solemn. People arrive and tell, and tell Antigonus, the general, they say, uh, Aristodemus is, is here. And, he's, and Antigonus, you know, he's trying to play it cool. You know, he's, he's the, the potential king here, and so he's, he's trying to play it cool. He goes, Look, go, go find out what happened. And so the messengers go to Aristodemus, and they say, uh, what happened, what happened? Aristodemus says nothing, just walking solemnly through the streets of the city, enjoying the recognition that he's receiving. The messengers arrive back, and Antigonus, they say, he won't tell us, and Antigonus himself goes out, and by this time, the whole city is walking through the streets with Aristodemus, with trying to find out what's happened. And Aristodemus, in his pride and arrogance, refuses to say anything until he gets to the king, and then he says, Hail, Antigonus, we have victory. And he expects to be rewarded for this good news, and Antigonus says, you will receive no reward for quite some time. Instead, you'll receive punishment. In his pride, in his arrogance, Aristodemus refused to proclaim peace. Sometimes in our pride, in our arrogance, you and I refuse to proclaim peace to those who need to hear the message. We don't want to be looked down upon. We don't want to other people to think we're kind of strange. Whatever reason it is, we hold that proclamation of peace within ourselves. And all around us, people, even though they may not know it, are in desperate need to hear that proclamation of peace. In our pride, we refuse to tell them. There's a man named Edward Jenner who in 17... 96. He was a doctor in 1796 in rural England. In 1796, he discovered the cure, the vaccination for smallpox. Smallpox was a, just a devastating disease. It would kill sometimes 80% of the children who contracted it. And Jenner discovers that the, the vaccination, the vaccine for smallpox. Imagine if he had just kept that message to himself. Imagine if he said, you know, it's kind of my thing. I'll wait till people come and ask me about it. But no, as he discovered what he had within, him, within this, this vaccination, there's a passion to proclaim it. You and I need to ask ourselves, is this our priority? For the disciples, it's the first thing that, they, that they're to say as they enter a house and you and I need to ask ourselves as well, is this my priority, this good news of Jesus Christ? Do I have a desire to proclaim God's peace in my relationships with other people? Fifthly, the fifth principle is in verses 7 through 8. The fifth principle is to remain where God bears fruit. Remain where God bears fruit. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, as you enter into this house and, and you've been received, he says in verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and, and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And I think Jesus is saying two things here. He's, first of all, encouraging them to contentment. These other traveling teachers that existed in Jesus' day would sometimes go into a town, they begin to proclaim this message, teach these things, and someone would receive them into their home. And as they were received into their home, and they would begin to teach other people, and as other people would respond to their message, perhaps a better home would offer itself. And so the, the traveling teacher would say, okay, I'm going to go stay with this person because I'll have better accommodations. And Jesus, first of all, calls his disciples to contentment. As your needs are being met, stay where you are. If people are receptive to your message, stay where you are and engage in gospel ministry in that location. That also brings with it the idea of commitment. There's contentment with where you're at, and there's commitment to where you're at. 
remain in that home, remain with those people, and as God opens the door for that ministry, stay there. Remain engaged in the proclamation of gospel ministry. Receive those things that people are willing to give you in order to allow you to stay there. There's commitment and there is contentment. Content in those things that God has provided. There's not a desire for the bigger and the better. There's contentment, not a desire for the bigger and the better. Reminds me of a story, a story of a church that was about 100 years old, and they had had a, a pastor that had served at that church for some 40 years. In those four decades of ministry, he obviously became very experienced in how to do pastoral ministry. And he retired, and the church was left with the task of finding a replacement pastor. And the church was kind of an older church, and they assumed that they, the search committee would find a candidate that was equally experienced, or at least had some experience. And instead, the search committee got up at a business meeting one evening, and they announced that they were going to, they're recommending the hiring uh, a 20-year-old, 25-year-old pastor, no pastoral experience of any kind, and they were recommending him to become the new senior pastor of the church, and the congregation was, was very shocked at this. In fact, one older saint leaned over to her husband, and she said, what in the world are they thinking hiring an inexperienced pastor. And her husband leaned back to her and he said, I guess they just decided to go for greener pastors. Just, sorry, it's a little, a little quiet in here. Greener pastors. So, anyway, talk about it at lunch, it'll come. Sometimes, sometimes we have this desire for greener pastures. We say, look, I, I want the ministry that I'm in right now is, is okay, but, but I want something bigger and better. And, oh, look, this ministry, that's a ministry that I'd really like to have. And there's a discontentment with the things that God has called us to. It's true not just in ministry, it's true in the workplace. I'm, in, I'm engaged in Peoria, Illinois, Central Illinois, engaged in this ministry, and, and, and yet I have this job opportunity over here in this location, and, and I don't know what the spiritual ramifications are for that, but, but it's a bigger job opportunity. It's a, a new job over here, and so I'm going to do that as well. Now, I'm not saying that God never calls us to go other places. He absolutely does, but here's what I would encourage you with. As you make ministerial and geographical moves, consider what are the spiritual ramifications of this move. Am I right now, has God provided me gospel ministry, edifying ministry for myself or if I have a family, my family? And is this perhaps, even though it's not as lucrative as this other opportunity over here, is this perhaps where God has called me? In the church, as you, as you engage in a ministry, perhaps God has called you to a certain ministry and you see, boy, this ministry over here looks a lot more exciting, there's a lot more recognition. Be content with where God has placed you for ministry. Remain where God bears fruit. And sometimes, there's a great discontentment as we think about the bigger and the better in life. And God's call is, look, look around you. See the opportunities that exist and stay there. Grow roots. Minister effectively for my kingdom and for my glory. That's one application. Don't seek after greener pastures. Another application of this principle is to allow others to assist your ministry. It's very interesting, and, and uh, for obvious reasons, this is a little awkward for me to talk about. But he says this in verse 7, the laborer deserves his wages. And let me just, let me just be transparent here with you. Uh, sometimes this is a very difficult thing for me to accept. There are people in our church, maybe this is too transparent, uh, there, there are people in our church uh, that I know are either underemployed or unemployed, who still give financially to this church. There are, are widows in our church who give financially to our church. And some of that, some of those resources go to providing for me and my family. That makes me a little uncomfortable. But the principle is, we must be humble enough to allow others to assist us 
in our ministry. Recognizing sometimes that even though we're relying upon other people, it's not just good for us, but it's good for them spiritually. It allows them to be a part of the work in which others are engaged. That brings us obviously to the third application, be engaged in supporting others in gospel proclamation ministries. Look for those that are around you that are engaged in children's clubs or, or missions or, or the work of the church and say, well, I want, to, I want to be engaged in supporting and assisting those ministries. Recently, uh, I had the privilege of talking to a missionary about uh, some, some increase in support for their ministry, and, and uh, the missionary just really expressed just incredible gratitude. And I said, look, we as a church are grateful to you. And it is our joy and our privilege to get to participate in this gospel ministry. It's exciting for us. Remain where God bears fruit. Don't seek greener pastures in ministry or the workplace. Allow others to assist you in your ministry and provide for others. Provide for others in their ministry so that God can continue to bear fruit where they remain. Sixth principle here. Sixth principle, minister to the sick. He says this in verse 9, uh, heal the sick in it, in this town. It, that's a physical ministry that they're engaged in. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you, or in, literally it says come upon you. In other words, they're engaged in these uh, alleviation of these physical maladies that these people are engaged in. They're meeting their physical needs. And as they meet those physical needs, they're saying, look, God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom has come upon you. The, you can be reconciled to God. There's not a sharp distinction that Jesus draws here between the, the physical relief of things and the spiritual reality of God's kingdom coming upon them. God's kingdom, think about this, God's kingdom is going to be a perfect restoration of all things spiritual and physical. And our tendency in Christendom is to sometimes focus only on the spiritual or only on the physical, God says there's going to be a complete restoration. As, God kingdom, as God's kingdom comes upon us, we meet physical and spiritual needs. We never meet physical needs without proclaiming the spiritual, and the spiritual needs all often have physical effects. And as our church thinks about its its ministry to the poor, its ministry to the orphan, its ministry to the impoverished, we do so announcing not here's some alleviation from some physical suffering, but here is God's kingdom, the manifestation of God's kingdom coming among you. It's exciting not because you're getting some bread and some food. It's exciting because it's being done in God's name, and here's how you can participate in God's kingdom. That's our motivation for doing social things. St. Francis of Assisi is said to have one time remarked, uh, preach the gospel wherever you go, and when necessary, use words. It's a very pretty statement, but it's not very biblically accurate. Now, we should be proclaiming the gospel through our deeds, but as we do good deeds, we verbally proclaim why we're doing that and whose name we're doing it and how a person can be reconciled to God and participate in his kingdom. The last principle here that we're just, I'm just going to say is to warn of God's wrath. Warn of God's wrath. This is going to be the topic of our sermon beginning next Sunday as we talk about people who don't respond to God's offer of peace. I want to close by relating a story of one more messenger. One more messenger, and this is found in, this story of this messenger is found in 2 Samuel 18. I want to tell you the story of one last messenger as we conclude. In 2 Samuel 18, David has been at war with his son Absalom. Absalom has usurped the throne and tried to, to kill those that are loyal to his father, David. And so there's a war between Absalom and David's commander, Joab, and Joab has killed David's son, Absalom. And news of the victory needs to go back to David. But Joab knows, Joab knows that 
There's going to be no joy that David receives from hearing that his son has died. A man named Ahimaz, Ahimaz, the son of Zadok, comes and says to Joab, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Ahimaz says, Look, I want to be the one who proclaims victory, that proclaims Yahweh has delivered us. And what does Joab say to him? No, no, no. You don't want to be the one who proclaims this good news because David is going to be sad. You can run another day. And he tells another man to go and run. Ahaz says, no, I want to run, I want to run. And Joab says, run. And so Ahaz is so excited, he outruns the other person. He says that the person drew nearer and nearer to the city. And the watchman says to David, I think the running is like the running of Ahaz, Ahimaz, the son of Zadok. And the king says, he's a good man and comes with what? Good news. You can read the rest of the story in 2 Kings 18, but uh, 2 Samuel 18, but, but get that idea. He's a good man and he comes with good news. A good messenger is one who proclaims good news, and as a messenger comes into the city, the city rejoices knowing that good news has come, recognizing, recognizing that there is news of victory. Do the people in your life recognize that you're a good man or a good woman, a good young person, good child, good teenager, who comes with good news? Do they recognize that the gospel of peace, the good news of God's Son dying in our place so that we could have, place our faith in Him and have this relationship with God restored, do people look at you and know that that's the message that you proclaim? That's what God calls us to. We're bearers of good news. We're evangelists proclaiming peace with God has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. Thank you that our relationship with you can be restored despite, despite our sin and our rejection of you. We pray this morning that we would be bold and faithful proclaimers of that message, and we pray for those in our lives who do not know that message, that they would respond with faith in you. We pray this for your glory in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.